Uh, today marks the beginning of our journey through Advent with a series titled Timeless Hope. Um, so there is an eternal hope that transcends the boundaries of time. Um, in theology, uh, we study eschatology, which is the study of end times or the ultimate destiny of humanity. Uh, in philosophy, uh, we search for the meaning of life. But all these studies, uh, they raise questions about the nature of hope, its role in human existence, and how it shapes our understanding of the world. So I'm suggesting that hope transcends, uh, uh, goes beyond the limitations of time. And it's both spiritually significant, but also universally relatable. Now, in the narratives of Advent, um, this, you know, there's this sense of anticipation, and it's based on a historical event. But there's also expectation because of a continuing promise. Um, but you might ask, well, what is Advent, and why is it so uh, unique to us? So I'm going to start off by giving you a little history of Advent. Now, the four weeks leading up to Christmas are designated as the Advent season. So yes, I'm starting uh, a week early because I wanted to use today to give you an introduction of Advent. I want to give you a little historical and biblical context of it. Now, the etymology of the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning arrival or coming. In Christian tradition, the Advent season holds a dual uh, significance. Uh, first, it's a historical reflection. Jesus arrived to accomplish salvation, uh, the beginning of God's redemptive plan for humanity. But secondly, it's a forward-looking anticipation. Jesus promised to return. We know it as the second coming of Christ. Now, anyone likes hymn? There's a beautiful hymn that captures the season of Advent. It's a hymn called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This hymn, it takes us back to life in the 8th and 9th centuries. Uh, seven days before Christmas Eve, monasteries would sing uh, the antipods. An antipon is a musical response where two groups of people would alternate singing or reciting. Now, these antipons are recited during the Magnificat at Vespers, which is um, the evening prayer service. And this would take place from December 17th through December 23rd. So each day they'll be singing a different song. Each antipons are as follows in the ninth century. And I'm going to read um, both you know, the Latin and English words. So you'll see, O Sapientia, O Wisdom, O Adonai, O Lord, and Adonai is the Hebrew word for God, Horatix Jesse, O Rudolf Jesse, O Clavis David, O Kiev David, O Oriens, O Dayspring, O Rex Gentium, O King of the Nations, or King of the Gentiles, and O Emmanuel, O Emmanuel. Now, each of these antiphons 
is traditionally associated with a specific day from December 17th to December 23rd. And it's reflecting a different Old Testament title for the Messiah. And so you'll see, you know, you know that came from Jesse, the root of Jesse, King David. Now, they express the anticipation and longing for the coming of Christ. Now, I want you to prepare yourself, prepare your heart, you know, clear your minds for a little bit, because I'm going to have the team play a snippet of O Sapensia. And this would have been sung on December 17th. Are you guys ready to play a little bit of it? Just verse 1 and 2. Go ahead. just verse 1 of 2. I mean, verse 1 and 2, I should say, of several. And just imagine they're meeting from December 17th to the 23rd, and they're singing a song like this. Now, you might be saying, I have no clue what they're saying. I got, I got you covered. Um, so they're singing O Sapentia, and the words say, All wisdom who came from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from end to end, and ordering all things mightily and sweetly, come and teach us the way of prudence. Now, let's go back to the list of the antiphons that we had earlier. And looking at these seven antiphons, when you put together the first letter of the second word, can you guys identify that, the first letter of the second word? What's that letter? The first letter of the second word. What do you see? S, thank you. So when you put together the first letter of the second word of each antiphon, it spells sarkor. If read backwards, the letters, they form a two-word acrostic, means erocross, meaning tomorrow I will come. The O Emmanuel antiphon was traditionally sung on the night before Christmas Eve, which is Christmas Adam, revealing the meaning of the liturgical riddle through the completion of the acrostic. Now we have the eighth antiphon, O Virgo Virginum, O Virgin of Virgins. Now this antiphon also has some great lyrics. It says, O Virgin of Virgins, how shall this be? For neither before thee nor after thee shall any be like unto thee. Daughters of Jerusalem, why marvel you at me? The thing which ye behold is a divine mystery. Uh, the divine mystery is about the virgin birth. 
Now, for all uh, the curious minds, or maybe you are a Da Vinci Code solver, if you look at the lyrics of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you'll notice that each verse starts with the English translation of the antiphon. So you go home, you can look at it, you'll, you'll notice that. Now, I could literally do a sermon on just that one psalm because it has so much in it. But here's the point I'm making. All these Latin um, acknowledgments, it pointed to the coming Messiah um, from the Old Testament, except Emmanuel, because it's already found in Isaiah 7, verse 14, and Matthew 1, and verse 23. Now, we're going to be discussing this later on in the series, but I want to read those verses for you. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, do you see how the antiphons work together, how this, this riddle at the end and saying, Tomorrow I'll see you, right? So in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we put ourselves in the shoes of Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, and all these uh, pre-Christian saints. And Zechariah is he's a priest, and he's married to Elizabeth. He was praying um, for a child. And so he was waiting um, for a child. Then we also have Simeon. Simeon was this man who, um, he was in Jerusalem, and God promised him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. So we're thinking about those moments. We reflect on the promises looking for the dawn of salvation, but we know that the waiting will not end when salvation comes. Um, historically, Israel waited through generations for the Messiah. Um, we find ourselves in a similar posture of waiting. Uh, we wait not with uncertainty, um, but with hope, a hope that's grounded in the promises of God. Um, so Advent season is a reminder that just as Christ came to bring salvation, he will come again to bring the results of salvation. What's the result of salvation? Eternal life. If we believe in Jesus, then we'll have eternal life. So in this waiting, we find confident expectation that what God has promised, he will fulfill. It's an assurance based on the faithfulness of God. So in this Advent series, we are invited to journey through the themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. And each of these symbolize uh, something specific. And we'll be lighting a candle starting next week to symbolize um, these themes. Uh, these themes will guide us through the layers of meaning embedded in the coming of Christ. The flickering flames of the candles illuminate the, the physical space yet they kindle the spiritual flame of hope that's within us. So in this season of Advent, let's not only count the days until Christmas, but let's count on the promises of God. So now that we've had a simple overview of the history of Advent, let's look at biblical prophecies. Now in the words of the prophet Isaiah, we find a timeless message of hope. Uh, the foundation of today's teaching is Isaiah 6 to 1, verses 1 to 3. And Isaiah speaks to a world 
familiar with brokenness. Uh, they're longing for something new. Now, as we examine the scripture, let us open our hearts to a truth that resonates not only with the people of Isaiah's time, but also with us. It's in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Can you pray with us, with me? Lord, just thank you for your word and I pray as we continue your word that you'll bring clarity to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, there are several passages in the Old Testament that we call messianic passages. A messianic passage is a portion of scripture that speaks about Christ before his existence in the New Testament. Uh, these messianic passages are fulfilled uh, by Christ when he shows up in the New Testament. Uh, this fulfillment is a decisive component in the Christian narrative because it highlights the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, this fulfillment reinforces the identity of Christ as the long-awaited Messiah, but also emphasizes the unity and, and the coherence of scriptures. Now, if to understand that the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to write this passage 700 years before Christ came on the scene in the New Testament. 700 years. So this was a prophetic moment for Isaiah. But here's how the fulfillment of this prophecy unfolded in the life of Jesus. Luke 3 tells us that unlike the baptism that John performed for repentance and remission, that Jesus' baptism had a different purpose. Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and the voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. This event marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and heavenly affirmation of Christ's identity as the beloved son of God. This was the divine commissioning moment in Christ's life and ministry. That's Luke chapter 3. But in the first part of Luke 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness of Judea where he fasted for how many days? Forty days and four nights, and he draws closer to his father spiritually. And Satan appeared and tempted Jesus, but Jesus successfully resisted him by quoting scriptures from the Old Testament. After Jesus ended his fast, his public ministry begins. And one of the first places he goes is where? Where was Dorothy trying to go? 
Dorothy kept saying, there's no place like home, right? So one of the first places that Jesus went is that he goes back home. He went to the region of Galilee, Nazareth, where he grew, where he grew up. So Jesus spent most of his life in Nazareth from about the age of three until about the age of 30. And then he relocated to Capernaum, where he spent the last three and a half years of his life. So he went home, and now he's this young rabbi. It's like going to college, and you're returning home as a young professional after graduation. Now, every culture has its unique customs or tradition. Well, in Jesus' time, it's no different. It was customary that if there was a visiting rabbi, then you let that rabbi teach in the synagogue. Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. But as far as they're concerned, there's nothing special about Jesus. So, you know, they're, they're concerned that, like, he's just a boy that run around in town. So they're not seeing him any, any different, right? So Jesus entered the synagogue, and the attendant hands him the scroll of Isaiah. Now, in those days, scriptures weren't written in books that we have it now. Um, scribes, you know, they wrote on parchment. And so they would roll these, you know, scrolls up. And when it was time for it to be read, they would unroll the scroll. So Jesus takes the scroll from the attendant, and he unrolls it to Isaiah 61. Here's something interesting. Chapters and verses, they weren't added to the Bible until the 13th and 16th century. In the 13th century, chapters, I mean, books were introduced, but, then the, but these verses didn't come to being until the 16th century. So this is just very recent. So we had these books, you know, Genesis, all the way to Revelation, but there's no chapters. It was just this big book. In the 13th century, we added chapters, but still it's just this long, run-on sentence, right? All the English teachers we had were freaking out. So they come about in the 16th century, and they added verses. And the purpose was to make it easier for us to find the passages in our Bible. So Jesus is not literally turning to Isaiah 6 to 1. He was given the Isaiah scroll, but intentionally turned to the part that speaks of himself. So Luke 4 and verse 18 to 19, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, notice the part that Jesus read in Luke 4 compared to Isaiah 6 to 1. When Jesus starts quoting Isaiah 6 to 1, he quotes all of verse 1, but only a part of verse 2. Let's go back to Isaiah 6 to 1, verse 1 to 2. Notice that part. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops right there. He then rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant and sits. Now, there are people who often don't understand the culture, so they think that when Jesus sat in the chair, he did something magnificent. But it was no big deal for him to sit in the chair, and here's why. 
it was typical for a rabbi to sit after reading the scroll. The rabbi would sit and the crowd stood for the duration of the teaching. Uh, this seating arrangement reflected the authority and teaching of the rabbi. Um, sitting symbolized the rabbi's position as a knowledgeable authority figure. In contrast, the crowd's standing posture conveyed respect, attentiveness, and readiness to receive the teachings. For example, when Christ fed the 5,000, if you look in Matthew 14, if you read carefully, you realize that it wasn't until verse 19 when Jesus said to the crowd, sit in the grass. The whole time he's teaching, he's sitting, and they're standing. If I bring you to um, what we call open-air service in Jamaica, there's, you know, go to a big field, there's no tent. We're just preaching the gospel. We're all standing. There's no keyboards, no drums, no microphone, no nothing. We're just standing the whole time. So this is what took place in Jewish culture. So they're standing while he's sitting and teaching. So when he fed the 5,000, it wasn't until he was about to feed them, he says, have them sit in the grass so I could give thanks and then feed them. So while he's teaching, they're standing. So when he did this in, in the synagogue, there's nothing special about him sitting. So, so Jesus reads part of Isaiah 61, verse 2, that says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus puts a period. You have to understand a punctuation mark is significant because it changes the meaning of a sentence. For example, if I say, let's eat, comma, Pastor Mimi. That means, Pastor Mimi, let's share a meal. If I leave it comma, you see what happens? Let's eat Pastor Mimi. Pastor Mimi has become the meal. So a comma is important. Jesus intentionally inserts a period by the fact that he rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant. Now, everything was fine until verse 21 of Luke 4. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If Jesus had read the next part about the day of God's vengeance, he wouldn't be able to say, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' coming happens in two phases. The first coming has already occurred, and his second coming has not yet occurred. When Jesus first came, his ministry and mission were for salvation. It was a time of grace. And he says this in John 12:47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So the purpose of the first coming of Jesus was to usher in grace so that people might be saved. The second coming involved God's vengeance. But between the first and second coming, there's a gap in which we live. Right now we're living in the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, we see it there. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And notice that after that, it says, the day of the vengeance of God. 
So when we accept Christ in our hearts, we are released from sin and the darkness that comes with it. If Jesus, the Messiah, has already come, and he has, and if we're not living in the day of God's vengeance, then by default, we're still living in the year of the Lord's favor. There's still an opportunity for people to get saved and to respond to the love of Jesus and to know that Christ died for their sins. So we're still living in the fear of the Lord. When Jesus says to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he's making a direct statement. I am the Messiah. They knew uh, that Isaiah 61 was a, a messianic passage. They knew that. But he was declaring to them that he was the Messiah. Remember what I said earlier. It's like visiting home after college, but the community doesn't receive you in, your, in the role that you're introducing. You know, it doesn't matter how you say, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm this engineer. The community sees you as the same kid that run, run, run around. They love to remind you of those embarrassing stories. Sometimes they tell you, remember I used to change your diaper? You're like, no, I don't remember. I was too young. So it doesn't matter how to say it. That's what you're saying. Jesus said, I'm not the son of the carpenter that they're used to seeing. And I'm not just some young rabbi. I'm the Messiah. But the people were dismissive, which is why Jesus says in Luke 4, 24, Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Because here, here he is trying to declare who he is now, and they're saying, no, I don't see that. We can often relate to this experience where people are too fixated on our past. Some people will judge you through the lens of your past. They evaluate you based on who you were or who they believe you should be. You know, most of the meetings I have with people who are hesitant about church or even church leadership have nothing to do with me. Not about me. It's often something from their past. So they meet with me to project how I could pastor them. Imagine the emotional trauma of having to practice behavior modification, where everyone individually has an opinion of who you're supposed to be. In Jesus' case, he hadn't sinned. They weren't looking at him through the lens of a previous sinful life. In their minds, he was the hometown boy. And here he is, having the audacity to come into their synagogue and say, I'm the Messiah. Then they get angry. Luke 4, 25 to 27. This is what he says. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. 
yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, when Christ says this, I mean, what's bad with him saying this? I mean, after all, he's just giving examples about the prophets Elijah and Elisha and what happened in their ministry. But you have to go back 2,000 years. Jesus highlighted that the prophets went to the Gentiles to minister God's grace to them. He says, in the days of Elijah, there were a lot of Jewish widows in Israel. But Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath and Sidon. She was a Gentile woman. And then he adds, remember the story of Elisha. In Elisha's day, there were plenty of Jewish lepers in Israel. But Elisha was not sent to any of them. He was sent to a Gentile man named Naaman, a Syrian. Christ is saying to them that he's come to fulfill these verses. He says, I am the Messiah, and I want you to know that the Messiah didn't come exclusively for the Jews. The Messiah came for the Jews, but also for every Gentile. I've come to save all people who would believe in me. So going back 2,000 years, women and lepers were second-class citizens. They weren't respected in society. But now, Christ has just elevated them as people of God. So now you're seeing this problem, right? He was saying that God loves each and every one of them. And he's saying even the ones that you rejected, Christ came to redeem. So after he says this, now they really want to kill him. Luke 4, 28 to 30. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the, the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked through the crowd and went on his way. Verse 30 indicates a miraculous moment. As you can see, they're trying to lay hands on him, but he walked through the crowd. Now, let's go back to our original text in Isaiah 61 and see what all this means for you and me as we're still living in the favorable year of the Lord. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. What Isaiah mentions here, Jesus confirms in Luke 4 and verse 18. Now considering both verses, we observe four things about the ministry of Jesus. These four observations is number one is that he came to preach the good news to the poor. Number two, to bind up the brokenhearted. Number three, to proclaim freedom for the captives. Number four, to release the prisoners from darkness. You notice that there are four groups of people and they're all descriptive of the human condition. Isaiah promises that Jesus would come, and he has come, 
to heal, deliver, and to set us free. So when we're reflecting in this Advent season, we're reflecting on what Isaiah had prophesied about what Christ was coming to do, to heal, to deliver, to set us free. Let me just break these down quickly in a few moments that I have left. First one, number one, Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor. When the word poor is used here, it doesn't mean materially or financially. It means spiritually poor. Because it's possible to be materially wealthy, but spiritually bankrupt. But the opposite is also true, where you can be materially poor, but spiritually rich. James 2 and verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of he has promised those who love him? We also see Ephesians 1 verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Of course, like many of you have been to countries around the world, including our own here, where people are struggling because of poverty. But yet with Jesus, they feel like they have everything. Now, I'm not advocating poverty, but a person can have everything by man's standards. But if they don't have Jesus, they lack everything. Jesus is more concerned about our spiritual health. This is why Jesus came to preach the good news, the gospel to the poor. He came to bring good news. The good news is that in God's economy, the wealthiest people are those who know him. Jesus said in the Sermon on Mount, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when we acknowledge our spiritual poverty and come humbly to Christ, we gain an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, according to 1 Peter 1 and verse 4. Second thing is that Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. So there are brokenhearted people in the world because people experience tremendous loss, heartache. People experience tragedy, adversity. You'll never find more compassion and hope for the brokenhearted than with Jesus. In fact, David says this in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There is no earthly remedy for the brokenhearted like there is with Jesus. Amen? Number three. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives. Captive means that we're in bondage to something. So people can be in bondage to drugs, alcohol, pornography, anger, unforgiveness, shame, and the list goes on and on and on. In fact, Peter once confronted a guy in Acts 8 verse 23, says, For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. We all have a sinful nature, but the good news is that there is freedom in Jesus Christ. Not that we'll never sin again, but when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we will never be mastered by sin. 
Say that again. When we come to Christ, it's not that we'll never sin again. But when we, this, because of Christ, we won't be mastered by the sin. The things that we used to do, it won't control no more. Sometimes we have these strongholds and we're like, how can I get rid of this thing? Feel like it controls you. But once you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you're no longer mastered by that thing. The fourth thing is that Jesus came to release the prisoners from darkness. Before a relationship with Christ, the Bible describes the human condition as living in darkness, spiritually blind, and prisoners of that darkness. But when you come to know Christ, you step into the light and see things you never saw before. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ came to rescue us. In this Advent season, we're remembering that, that he came to rescue us. And if you're here, you don't, have, you don't know Christ, he came to rescue us. So we're still living in the favor of the Lord. There's still an opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins. There's freedom, forgiveness, healing, joy, and salvation in Christ. In Isaiah 6, 61 and verse 3, the author summarizes by saying that in addition to all of this, Christ has come, watch this, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God takes spiritually bankrupt, brokenhearted lives that are kept up to sin, and he brings beauty instead of ashes, praise instead of despair, and gladness instead of sorrow. He makes us righteous through Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says that God plants us like an oak tree to display his splendor. When we come to Christ and we surrender our lives to him wholeheartedly, he plants us. He says it's not that we are saying that we're good by ourselves. But he says he plants us for his glory, for his splendor, so that people can say, why are you so different? You can say, because of Christ. Why can you stand in the midst of adversity? Because of Christ. How is it five years ago this thing would cause you to feel depressed, but now you don't get depressed, and this thing is even worse than five years ago? Because of Christ. And because of Christ... I'm planted like an oak tree for you to see. For you to see that because of Christ, we can have freedom. Because of Christ, we can have strength. So he plants us, not like, like, a, like a leaf that goes tossing forth. No, no. An oak tree that stands. I invite the worship to come forward. I don't know where you are 
with your relationship with Christ. But he loves you. Jesus desires to bind up your broken hearts. He still proclaims the good news to those who are spiritually poor. And Jesus wants us to be free, free from the things that hold us captive. Even as a believer, sometimes we struggle with things that feels like a stronghold. I didn't say it is a stronghold. It feels like a stronghold. But Jesus came to free us from those things. He wants to release prisoners from darkness, those who haven't made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. He came for that. But we must open our eyes to be spiritually enlightened instead of being prisoners of darkness. So as we reflect on Christ in this season, we should rejoice in knowing that just as God kept his promises in sending his son, all his promises will be fulfilled in our lives. So as we're waiting for Christ's return, we wait with timeless hope. We're going to get a chance to partake of communion. You guys can come forward. And as you're we're listening. I hope you're listening to what happens. Where this Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before Christ came on the scene. And it happened. And maybe you're saying, well, will Christ ever come again? <laughs> yes, he will. He says no one knows the hour nor the day. But what we have, what we can hold on to in faith is this practice of communion. As often as we do this, we're remembering. We're remembering how God sent His Son, and, and His Son came and was nailed to a cross for our sins, and then He ascended to heaven, and now as we take communion, we're reflecting on the, on the reality that Jesus is coming again. So we practice open communion, which means that if you are a Christian, don't have to be a member of this church, but if you're a Christian, you can partake of communion with us together. But if you have not yet made a decision to follow Christ, we ask you to refrain from communion. However, you have an opportunity right now to invite Christ inside your hearts. So we're going to pray a prayer, and after we pray, I invite you to partake of communion. Lord, I pray for the one that might not yet made that decision to follow you. I pray, God, that you'll help them to realize how much they need you in their lives, God. And I pray, God, in this moment, it be an opportunity for them to receive forgiveness of sin in their lives. I pray, God, for all of us here that we can remember, God, that you sent your son. He died on the cross for us. And here we are, reflecting and living in your favor, living in the favor, knowing that one day you'll return. But right now we have an opportunity to serve you 
in the fullness of our lives. So I pray, God, that right now you help us to have a posture, a posture that reflects who you are in our lives. I pray, God, that you'll just continue to speak into our hearts, Lord God. We just love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name.